Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Riley Yesno, longtime guest, first-time host, filling in for Matea. And this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and the tensest of provincial elections. Today, a fiery election in Alberta. No, literally, Alberta's on fire this election campaign. And a $95 billion lawsuit against the Ontario and Canadian government, challenging a lack of consent around resource extraction and the way treaty rights are upheld. Joining me this week, we know you miss her as much as we do, Catherine Grakowski, reporter from Alberta Today. Happy to have you back. Happy to be back. And we are too. (laughs) Emma McIntosh, reporter from the Narwhal. Happy to finally have you on. Pleasure to be here. And another Emma, Emma Jackson, organizer with Climate Justice Edmonton and 350 Canada. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Let's get into it. This campaign is actually about giving families hope. This election is a choice between moving forward or going back. Albertans are heading to the polls on May 29th to elect their province's next premier. In 2022, Alberta's current premier, Danielle Smith, narrowly won the United Conservative Party leadership race on the sixth and final ballot after former premier Jason Kenney stepped down. However, that race was an internal party election, and those registered with different parties didn't get the chance to vote. So this will be the first test of Smith's electoral viability across the entire province. This time around, Smith is going head-to-head with NDP leader and former premier Rachel Notley. And the pair are in a really close competition. Opinion polls have the NDP slightly ahead of the UCP for now, with the outcome likely depending on the 26 seats in Calgary. Although Smith's platform was compelling to much of her base when she was first elected, stop most, if not all, COVID restrictions, the Alberta Sovereignty Act, healthcare reforms, that conversation has since changed. Her right-wing policies seem to have raised eyebrows, even from those who'd consider themselves conservative. It also seems like Smith has an interesting habit of saying some objectively horrific things and a history of potentially career-destroying moves. We can't ignore that this election is also happening in the midst of a raging, devastating wildfire. Tensions are high in Wild Rose Country, so let's dig into it. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the current election, could you describe the past few months under Premier Smith's leadership for listeners? I'm going to just start this off by saying that I think that a lot more people would care about Alberta politics if they understood the deep, 
deep lore, which we could not even explain if we had three hours. It's like a Lord of the Rings universe of people. But from from an outsider's perspective at this point, it has been like unbridled chaos. Every week, a new video has surfaced or a new audio clip has surfaced of the premiere saying something absolutely unhinged. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch the Netflix series, How to Become a Tyrant, but it starts with Hitler in the first episode. And it's absolutely appalling and shocking. Yeah. So many people say that they would not have succumbed to the charms of a tyrant, somebody telling them that they have all the answers. And he said, I guarantee you would. And that's the test here is we've seen it. We have 75% of the public who say not only hit me, but hit me harder and uh, keep me away from those dirty unvaxxed. Every single week, there's like another character popping up from Alberta's political past with like another new thing to say. Another accusation flying. I mean, the, the real Albertans are better placed to explain the details. But like, this is quite the show. Thank you for that. I think as somebody uh, not based in Alberta right now, that that is a fairly accurate representation of how I would see it. Speaking about the unhinged nature of some of Danielle Smith's comments and, you know, work, how does any politician like her endure so many self-inflicted hits? And she still, you know, really has a chance at this election. Can you kind of explain that dynamic? I mean, I would say in terms of what has kind of allowed her to sort of stay as as high in the polls for the most part as she has, I think oftentimes there's sort of this over-reliance in some ways of saying, okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna expose this absurd thing that she said, or we're gonna we're gonna expose her corruption. So it must have just been a few months ago that it, it was exposed that she was trying to, you know, intervene in this sort of disciplinary action against reverends, pastors who were violating COVID mandates. And for the most part, you know, these things will last for really short blips of time. And for the most part, I would say that the vast majority of people right now actually expect their politicians to be quite corrupt. I don't think that's something that is that surprising to people. I actually think they're like, well, everyone's corrupt in some ways. And so now I'm going to try to balance, you know, who's more corrupt over the other. But at the same time, who is promising to make my life better? And who is putting forward in some way a compelling vision that speaks to my material needs? And I think that Danielle Smith has still been able to do that. She's still, you know, really hammered home this Notley-Trudeau-Singh alliance. She's been able to say, you know, Ottawa is going to come for Alberta. It's going to make your life harder. And the more that she's hammering home on that, I think the more that people, again, through this whiplash are sort of willing to let go of some of these really disgusting things that she's been saying. So I wonder then, how does Rachel Notley read in that dynamic? People maybe have come to expect corruption in their politicians. So Danielle Smith, you know, that's not exceptional in any means. Does it make maybe Rachel Notley look, I don't know, boring or unexceptional? I kind of feel like at this point, Rachel Notley is kind of like that ex that you broke up with. But maybe now you're starting to realize that, like, those things that were wrong in the relationship weren't necessarily her fault, which, like, your friends were telling you at the time, but you weren't listening. So I, for context, was a reporter at Star Metro Calgary during the last election. And we're writing all these stories about how so many of the things that felt wrong in Alberta at the time were, like, the result of these big global forces, right? Like, the premier can't control oil prices. We all know that. 
But in the moment, Jason Kenney was promising fixes, was promising all these things were going to be better. And that was such an appealing vision. I think four years later, pretty much anyone can see that like very little of what Jason Kenney promised actually happened. And also he ended up being pushed out in the end by like the very same people he courted to get there in the first place. And I think how much people are willing to to crawl back to the ex might just be the big question here, you know? Like, she's looking good, but is she looking that good? Or do we want to go back to the same kind of dudes we've always been dating? Rather than one inspiring vision versus another, a lot of the the rhetoric right now is like, well, we're not as bad as the other guy. Like Rachel Notley has said, well, you might not agree with everything I say, but you know me, you know who I am, you know where I stand. And I think a lot of, lot of people maybe going back to the 2015 to 2019 NDP government, realized it wasn't this radical socialist dystopia where everything fell apart. So they may be willing to give another chance. Same thing with the UCP. Something super interesting that's happening at the doors is candidates from their party are saying, uh, you know, I know you're maybe not super stoked on Daniel Smith, but actually we can vote her out. So just vote for the UCP to stop the NDP. So it's it's kind of this back and forth between vote for me so we can stop the other guy. Catherine, you tweeted, and I quote, one thing that's been interesting about the policy announcement so far is that many of the UCP and NDP promises have actually been very similar, but just in varying degrees. Can you unpack that for me? Both parties, believe it or not, have said, yes, we'll get to net zero by 2050. Both have campaigned on getting rid of that paper health card. Both have this fiscal plan for managing resource revenue. They both say, hey, we're going to protect public health care. And it's just a matter of degrees. And, and you see what I would call a lot of like micro pandering. So there's like the NDP have promised to eliminate the seniors driver's medical exam fee, and they're going to give free shingles vaccine. The UCP are saying, well, we're not going to eliminate that fee, but here's a 25% seniors discount. And we'll also throw in that discount on camping and registration fees. So it's like these tiny, itty-bitty little promises. Another one was sexual assault center and domestic violence organizations. Uh, the UCP promised $10 million to each over four years. The NDP promised about $17 million plus a commitment to do long-term sustainable funding. So they're all talking about the same thing. It's just a slightly different approach. Like when you strip back the rhetoric that you know, the the socialists are going to raise all your taxes and drive all investment out of the province. And the, you know, the UCP are going to have this Christo-fascist stripping of all your rights. Once you peel back the rhetoric, the actual policy announcements that they promised, different from maybe what their party membership has voted on, but what they've actually promised, it's very similar. It's good, I think, you're setting the stage and illustrating that the party dynamics and the party placement on, say, a left-right spectrum is very different than it would be in other parts of Canada. This is open to anybody. How well do you think those proposals that Catherine so excellently laid out for us, are they actually meeting the needs and concerns of Albertans? Is that speaking to people in any way? I'm sure that some of it is, but I'm sitting over here kind of laughing, being like, yeah, nothing, nothing's going to turn voters out to the polls like a shingles vaccine, you know, like, 
in this current moment, the entire province is on fire. People are, are, are being evacuated from their homes. And, you know, the day that that was happening, 44 new fires kind of erupted across the province. Rachel Notley decided, oh, this is my moment to take to Twitter and to boast about the fact that, you know, I'm helping. I fought for the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I was one of the champions. And, and it's because of me and my government that that project is being built. And it's, it's completely tone deaf in a moment like that. You know that that political strategy did not work for you in 2019. You know that you can't out-pipeline the UCP, and yet they're doubling down on that. And then in the midst of all of these evacuations, they decided we're going to announce a $500 tax credit for families to pay for piano lessons, gymnastics, you know, and, and so there's share graphics of hockey rinks that are being, you know, posted all over Twitter at a time when people are literally fleeing their homes in a way that almost looks like satire. You're like, how could this be so disconnected from the reality on the ground? And like Catherine said, I think I think the policies start to feel really, really muddy. The the vision isn't there. We're not distinguishing between the two. And they're they're not isolating the opposition in the way that's needed in order to really galvanize voters. Thank you for bringing up once again what is, you know, an undeniable, I think has to be factor in this election, is the wildfire situation. The scope of this crisis is already unprecedented, but in the next few days, the risk of wildfire danger is forecast to quickly spread through most of the province, driven by rising temperatures. Is there attention being given to, say, the fact that the UCP government cut tens of millions of dollars to wildfire preparedness programs? Is that a factor, I guess, is my question? It's tough. It's it's hard to know if people really connect those dots. The listeners can't see this, but on my wall behind me is the front page of the Calgary Herald from the day of the Fort McMurray wildfire evacuations. It says devastation. It's like this dystopian photo. And if there was ever going to be a wake-up call, that might have been it, you know? I've never been able to really understand. Maybe Emma Jackson is better at understanding this. Like, how much these events really factor into how people vote. I think it's really easy to just focus on what's in front of you and not to see the big picture, especially when you're in the midst of a crisis. To what Emma said, like, I do think if you look at polling of Albertans and their views on climate change, we are at a point now where over half of Albertans are like, yes, climate change is an emergency or it's going to soon become an emergency. So I think what we're seeing is that the average, you know, everyday Albertan is actually far ahead of our politicians when it comes to the climate crisis. And we don't give them credit for that. So I, I recently wrote an article for The Breach and I, I told this story towards the end of moving into my current apartment and coming across my neighbor in the process of moving. And he asked me what I did for work. And I, you know, it was like very early in the morning. I was like, I don't, I don't really want to get into it. But anyways, I, I was like, no, you know, I trust him. And, and we had talked before and I said, I work on climate change. And he was like, wow, that's incredible. That's, you know, that's really awesome. And then said, I'm a boiler maker. I actually work out at the refineries. And so I'm the bad guy. And we got to talking and he said, I would love to continue to work in oil and gas, but the wildfires that were burning last summer across BC that were bringing smoke to the city, I can't do it anymore. He was like, it feels terrible, but I don't know what the plan is. I don't know what the opportunities are for me. And I want a job in a different industry. I don't want to feel as though 
I'm fueling this crisis. And I think that's the sentiment for thousands of workers across the province, but they're waiting for the vision. They're waiting to be told, what is the plan? How do I know that I'm gonna be able to keep putting food on the table? And that compelling plan isn't being put forward, neither by Rachel Notley or Danielle Smith. We're not seeing it on the table, but I do think that the vast majority of people are waiting for it. They wanna be energized by it. And the polling also shows that Albertans are way more likely to support climate action when it's tied to making the corporate elite and the rich pay more. We have oil and gas companies that are raking in record profits that are that are sending millions of dollars to offshore tax havens. There's never been a better opportunity to say, okay, we need to recoup the profits of these corporations and we need to use that to fund climate action. And here's the plan and here's how we're gonna do it. And it, it makes me just grind my teeth at night that the NDP are letting that opportunity go. I'm like, how could you be missing this? This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Taking your vitamins and keeping track of your daily nutritional needs is not exactly what I would call fun. There are famously a lot of vitamins out there that you're supposed to take A's, B1, B12, C, E, K, zinc, potassium. How am I supposed to keep track of all this? I can't remember. Well, if you take AG1, you don't have to remember all your different vitamins because one scoop has all you need and it's just a simple habit to add into your daily routine. I take AG1 every day to make sure I'm giving my body what it needs. Athletic Greens has tweaked and refined their blend to make sure that you're maximizing what you're getting with AG1. It also tastes, like, pretty good. AG1's ingredients are harvested from farms around the world, and it has a subtly sweet taste with a little bit of vanilla and notes of pineapple. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com backbench. That's athleticgreens.com backbench. Check it out. Now it's time for Private Members' Bills, the part of the show where we let our panelists set the agenda for once. Without further ado, I'd like to call on the Honourable Member from Edmonton, Griesba, to introduce a Private Members' Bill. Honourable Speaker, it is my pleasure to rise and introduce to you and through you an act to recognize when the party is over. We have not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, but 14 parties running in the Alberta election. And from what I hear, federally, there are some parties hoping to form as well. Of those parties, only two are running full slates. You know, you have the Liberal Party in a very sad state. They describe themselves as a house on good foundation that people sneer they look at because it's falling apart. The third highest fundraising party in Alberta is actually the Alberta Pro-Life Political Association. They run one candidate, and basically they exist because, unlike a charity, they can do political action, but also fundraise and issue tax receipts. So my proposal is that every three years, let's take a look at the parties and meet the criteria that a new party would have to meet. Because 14, that's too crowded, it's too much the party's over, go home. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I think we'll take that into consideration. <laughs> if anybody here has hosted a party, you know the people that stay just way too long in the end are the worst partygoers. So I think that's a very important proposal. Now, I want to hear from the honorable member from Edmonton Center. Honorable speaker, as the province of Alberta is burning from climate-fueled wildfires and oil and gas companies are raking in these exorbitant profits, 
I would like to propose that we tax the excess profits of the fossil fuel corporations and channel that money directly to the First Nations, Métis communities, communities across the country that are being absolutely devastated by climate impacts and use those funds in order to pay for the programs, the services, and the, the firefighting that we need in order to make our communities more resilient to future climate impacts that we know are inevitably going to come. Listen, the indigenous academic organizer in me is loving this proposal. Land back means cash back, baby. And now we'll hear from the honorable member from University Rosedale. Honorable speaker, I I rise today to beg, (laughs) beg you to consider a bill to make it less embarrassing, internationally (laughs) embarrassing to live in the province of Ontario. And... There are so many reasons why we could be discussing this bill today. Being the province responsible for Jason Kenney, for starters. Mm. Being the province that's like the only one willing to rip up a protected area. Talking about you, Ontario Greenbelt. But the real reason today that I'm asking for Ontario to be less internationally embarrassing is this this story by my friend and colleague Fatima Sayed, the founding host of The Backbench, who you might know. And she's reporting on this tiny town of archipelago in Ontario that is so frustrated with our government's changes to environmental rules and specifically a plan to pipe sewage from one big lake into another. Very bad for a lot of things, probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> that It's so frustrated that it is asking cities from other provinces and even cities in the U.S. to help it tell the Ontario government to please stop. And I just want to know when this will end. And also, can we just maybe not, like, flow poop around in these (laughs) giant pipes from lake to lake? Just mortifying. (laughs) Not (laughs) flowing poop is a very interesting and I think very exciting uh, proposal and I'm sure would help with our larger goal of being less embarrassing. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ten First Nations in Northern Ontario are suing the federal and provincial government for $95 billion, and this includes my own Admetung First Nation. They're suing over an allegedly deceptive treaty process and a lack of consultation over what has been happening on their territory over the last century. $95 billion in damages. Now, that is a lot of money. Why that number? It's a calculation of a percentage of the gross revenue Ontario has earned from resource extraction on Treaty 9 territory over the last century. They're also asking for a renewed understanding of co-jurisdiction and control over what happens on their land in the future when it comes to resource extraction. We're stepping right out of that box of unilateral jurisdiction and saying that is not correct. It never was. That Treaty 9 actually guaranteed and promised co-jurisdiction. 
Treaty 9 covers about two-thirds of the province's total landmass, and this treaty was first entered into in 1905-1906. It's made between these 10 First Nations, several others, and the Crown, who is represented by commissioners from Canada and Ontario. It may take at least 10 years before there is a ruling as this suit weaves its way through the courts. These nations are in it for the long haul. Notably, this lawsuit will challenge the development of the so-called Ring of Fire, a vast area that's mineral-rich in northern Ontario. The Ontario government has big plans to mine this area, particularly for raw materials to make technology for electric vehicles. Premier Doug Ford, however, has said that the development of the Ring of Fire will go ahead despite First Nations opposition, even if he has to hop on the bulldozer himself. Well, you know something, we're building that ring of fire sure as I'm talking to you. It's going to benefit uh, First Nations community. This lawsuit is far from a done deal. But still, what impact can this have on treaty rights, mining, and climate action going forward? I'm going to start with Emma Jackson. Why are these nations in Ontario launching this lawsuit now? Do you have any sense of what's been happening with mining and resource in northern Ontario? I mean, I'm sure, Riley, that you would be better positioned to speak (laughs) to this, but I can only assume that, you know, with the amount of sort of prospective development, the the potential, the, the sort of push from the Ford government in order to mine the Ring of Fire, that it's really this critical time for, for First Nations communities to be coming together and to say, okay, well, they've been violating our treaty rights since day one. They will continue to do that. And so now is the time for us to come together and to really push for this bold vision of co-jurisdiction in order to ensure that our rights and title are being guaranteed as we're confronted with, you know, this incredibly violent government and, and these violent corporations who we know will not in any way be willing to guarantee our rights and title. Yeah, and I probably should have mentioned this in the introduction, but it's important to know about this area, why I think we're emphasizing climate so much in this conversation, as well as obviously First Nations sovereignty and rights and title, is that this is, you know, one of Canada and the world's largest carbon sinks. It's a invaluable headland with more biodiversity than almost any other part of Canada. And so there is a lot at stake here in terms of precedent for treaty rights and all of us. In in a way, I think those First Nations in Treaty 9 are doing this lawsuit and launching this suit, I think, for more than just them. Emma McIntosh, your reporting was one of the first I saw about this, about this lawsuit. Can you tell us about the ways that that original treaty was faulty? Oh my God, there are so many ways. <laughs> there are so many ways. So with Treaty 9, I think it's like a kind of perfect test case for a lawsuit like this. So Treaty 9 covers uh, James Bay and Hudson's Bay watersheds, which actually make up about two-thirds of Ontario, by the way, for those of you who don't know, so huge area. And the way this came about was in the late 1800s, leaders in some of the Korean Anishinaabe communities in that region began kind of asking to negotiate something because settlers were rushing into their homelands, occupying the space, messing things up, and leaders wanted to you know, make a framework for how this was going to happen and ideally minimize harm here. And so representatives of the Crown drew up what they wanted. And then they journeyed up and had a bunch of meetings with a series of communities. And they told Indigenous leaders that they would retain the right to hunt, 
fish and trap on their homelands, that they would be able to use them as they always had for time immemorial. But, you know, classic Canadian historical moment, what they actually wrote down in the treaty document was vastly different and said none of those things. There's actually this clause known as the taking up clause that has become really consequential, which just, you know, little, no big deal. Just the Crown could possibly take any tracts of land that it wants for anything as required, which ended up being a very big deal in the end. Now, this is important because, first of all, like, we know that those verbal promises have been affirmed by courts in the past, but it's not even just verbal promises that we're talking about here. The Crown representative at the treaty negotiations, this guy named Daniel G. McMartin, he kept a very detailed diary of how they were misleading Indigenous leaders. Like he wrote down notes where he said, we told them that they could keep their land, but actually we wrote down that they couldn't. Anyways, we had fish for dinner. Like, it is insane. In terms of just having written evidence, like the kind of written evidence that settler courts love to be able to point to, there is tons of it. That's not even the only diary. And of course, like, the Canadian and Ontario governments have not affirmed the oral promises. Like, of course. But on the, the face of it, what's so interesting to me about this case, beyond like the huge implications for the people who live there and for the climate of the entire planet, is that like... The evidence on its face seems pretty cut and dry. Like, yeah, you're not supposed to be doing the stuff that you're doing. Absolutely. I think that's also a great piece of law background and precedent to bring up is the way that you did there. There are instances, many instances actually, of courts in Canada using oral testimony and oral history as a legitimate form of evidence. But you're right. In this one, we're looking at a mountain. (laughs) All different forms, all different ways. Catherine, Does this kind of lawsuit have any precedent beyond just that, you know, oral evidence element to it? Are there other examples of such large lawsuits in terms of scope when it comes to resource extraction, either in Canada or elsewhere in the world? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2022, there was actually a lawsuit in Ecuador. And what courts ruled there is that Indigenous people, it's not enough to just be consulted. They actually have to give their consent. And last month, there were two nations in BC who took a case to the Supreme Court. I don't believe it's been decided yet, but there's this, I think it's called Minerals Tenure Act. And basically what it does is anybody can apply online for a permit as long as it's on private land. And then they didn't have to consult any Indigenous person. And it's kind of like, ah, you're on our territory. You, You do have to consult, actually. So that is before the courts right now. I'm thinking of the treaty history. I was just thinking, here here I am on Treaty 6. And when Treaty 6 was signed, settlers had the shared use of land to the depth of the plow. So basically, if, if you are listening to what the treaty says, what is written down, Indigenous people should have those mineral rights. And, and another thing that's going on that I'm watching in terms of an upcoming lawsuit, of course, in Treaty 8 territory, there was this spill at Imperial Oil, the Curl Oil Sands tailings leak. And I was listening to the testimony of Athabasca Chibuan, First Nation Chief Adam. We, we don't want to be the type of people, okay, we talk to you, uh, consultation done, check. We want to actually have those decision-making powers And so they've asked for the Alberta Energy Regulator to be completely overhauled. They want decision-making authority. 
Yeah, thank you for that. I know we're very lucky to have a lot of climate expertise on this panel right now. Talk about, you know, the argument that, you know, all political parties, varying level of governments use when they try to justify mining the ring of fire, which is that we need it for electrification. It's like this cornerstone of every party's climate plans. Even, you know, you might expect it from the Conservative Party, from the Liberal Party, but the Green parties as well are like, no, mining sucks, but we have to do it in this case. And I just want to ask, do you think that's true? Do you think that, you know, electrification is like our way of getting to, you know, this different climate future to net zero, whatever it be? I don't know what electrification looks like for these parties other than we're living the exact same way we do, but with electric cars instead. Is that going to have the impact that they say and promise that it will, even putting aside for a brief moment, you know, the obvious violations of of jurisdiction and rights? I wouldn't say there's no role for electrification where that, you know, electricity won't have anything to do with building a sort of zero carbon economy. But what you're naming, Riley, is that we're saying, okay, so here is our existing sort of economic structure. And so we just need to green it. And that's the fundamental problem is to say, we're going to take this hyper individualistic, every single person lives out in this, you know, scattered, suburbanized city, and everyone is still going to be able to have their own private vehicle. And and in order to do that, we're going to need to dig up the ring of fire in order to power EVs. And that is so incongruent with what is actually needed, which is to think of how are we rebuilding and transforming our entire society in order to get away from this hyper-individualistic way of living. And so thinking about how are we funding public transit, for example, as a way to connect our communities We know that colonization is at the absolute root of the climate crisis. And so we can't adequately address the problem if we continue to violate Indigenous rights and sovereignty. And I think what we see in these discussions of we need to dig up the ring of fire in order to, you know, power electric vehicles. It's such a narrow, really capitalist way of still thinking. And it's not situated within this long term or even, you know, zoomed out perception of, wait a second, it's absolutely ludicrous that we would dig up, as you said, one of the largest carbon sinks on the planet in order to then power electric vehicles so that we can continue to live our lives in in the same way that we currently are. Instead of saying, here's an opportunity for us to really reevaluate in this moment, you know, what does it look like to live a good life? What does it look like to be in deep relationship with the land and with one another? And we know that, you know, Indigenous people asserting their sovereignty over their own lands has been the single most effective climate solution globally, both in Canada, but also internationally by far. And so I think cases like this, it's really incumbent upon settlers who are concerned about the climate crisis to say, this could be transformative. It could set precedent and really keep fossil fuels in the ground, keep these mining projects stalled in a way that is absolutely necessary at this critical turning point. What I would maybe add there too is that I think the business world is actually ahead of our politics on this. When this lawsuit was announced, the lawyer representing the 10 First Nations, Kate Kempton, she said that really she wanted to also put businesses on notice here, that 
you know, if these businesses want to be able to make all that money by getting stuff out of the ground, the first thing that they should be doing is advocating for true, proper, free, prior, and informed consent and for environmentally responsible development. We have some big choices here and we have to kind of face the news, you know, face the music (laughs) and recognize that maybe not every single project is going to be a good idea. Maybe a lot of them should stay in the ground. And in the business world, I think that this is starting to at least take more of a hold. And mining companies, just from a pure like business perspective, are deciding where they're going to put their money. Even from like the most capitalist like way of thinking about it, in some cases, it just doesn't make sense to do these things if you're going to not be able to explain it to investors. The thing that's interesting, I think, is watching politicians fall so far behind the business world on this one. And I, I wonder where that mismatch is going to lead us. All right, let's adjourn. That's the backbench. Talk again in two weeks when the weather is going to hopefully be consistently sunny, please, but not so hot in some provinces. If you're following what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you're watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, your rants. You can email us backbench at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Riley Yesno, and you can find me on Twitter at Riley Yesno Maybe. Catherine, where can people find you? People can find me. I am still on Twitter at C Grakowski, or you can check out my work, politicstoday.news. Emma Jackson, where can people find you? Yeah, people can also find me on Twitter at Emma Jackson57, and I have a recent piece out at The Breach as well. Love it. And Emma McIntosh, where can people find you? I'm at the narwhal.ca ranting about the green belt in Ontario. And you can also find me on Twitter at Emma MCI, also ranting about the green belt. <laughs> it's really your choice on where you want to hear that same rant. Shout out to the green belts. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> this episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Noor Azrieh, with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.